So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you may notice from the notes, this is rapture part 4. As we've been going through Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. If you are here for the first time this morning, you got to go back and listen to the first three. So please go ahead and leave and do that. <laughs> and then come on back and join us. No, we, we've been building a case uh, not to try and proof text anything, but to stay in the text of the Scripture, to take God's Word literally, and just to see what it says. Some of this that I've been teaching has unnerved a few people. I, I get that. I understand that. I myself was unnerved when I first came to the concept of the rapture. But we've been trying to just say, what does the Word tell us? What does the Bible say? It doesn't matter what my tradition is. It doesn't matter what my background might be. It doesn't matter what I think I know. The question is, what does the Lord tell us? And that's what we continue to want to pursue as a fellowship. We've been pursuing that for coming on 14 years now, of just going through God's Word and letting His Word be our teacher. And so we continue that this morning. And uh, in Second Thessalonians, these 12 verses or so, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, remarkable, remarkable words from Paul. Some that supports, as we've talked about, prophecies of Daniel, prophecies of Jesus, prophecies of John that would come after this in the Revelation. And other things that he says, a couple will note this morning, that say some things that we haven't seen before. Prophecies of Paul. So let's read through this. We're just going to pick up right in verse 6, right in the middle of it. And like I said, if you've missed some of the previous teachings on this, I encourage you strongly, go back because we're just walking this out and and trying to uh, paint the full picture with His Word. Verse 6, And you know what restrains Him now, so that in His time He will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. The Spirit of the Lord, teach us now your word and give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I never owned a surfboard. I know know what you're thinking. You look at me and you say, you never surfed? Well, I didn't say that. I just said I never owned a surfboard. Growing up in Southern California, you'd think that everybody surfed. Well, we didn't all, but we we got out into the waves. Uh, I, I surfed a couple of times. I tried my feet. Didn't work out so well. But most of my friends had a different way. We had a different approach. Very, very popular, especially in the 1970s. And that was boogie boarding. See, anybody can lay on a board and get thrown around by the waves, right? Doesn't take a whole lot of skill, but man, it was great. I have fond memories of summer days, most of the summer spent down at the beach, getting there early in the morning, going to Thousand Steps or Salt Creek there in Southern California, and bringing our boogie boards and spending the day out there in the waves and in the water, reeking of coconut oil. See, that was the whole idea of tanning back then was you wanted to be crispy. If you could be crispy, you knew that you had a good tan. Wow. And we're all paying for it today. You'd have flippers on your feet and and we'd paddle out to meet the waves and I just loved it. And we'd sit there waiting for the next set because typically the waves come in sets and we'd sit there kind of balanced on our boards or maybe laying across our boards waiting for the next set to come. And invariably we'd get to talking and, and looking around and not paying attention until someone would shout, Wave! And we'd turn and there it was, you know, this massive wall of water. And oftentimes it would happen that the wave was really too close to, to flee to shore. You were going to get pummeled. And so you had another alternative. You, you either got flipped by the wave, and that would happen as well. You'd be doomed to eat a Southern California breakfast sandwich, so to speak. 
But the best thing you could do was sim the tide. Sim the tide. Now, that phrase is used wrongly. I don't know if you realize this. We use the phrase to stem the tide to hold something back. That's what we think of when we think, I'm going to stem the tide of this, of this evil or this problem or this issue. We're going to hold it back. That's not what the phrase stem the tide means. It's actually from an old Norse sailing phrase. And it literally has to do with the upright beam at the front of a vessel, at the fore of the ship, where the whole timbers come together and form the prow, and that is called the stem. And if a sailing vessel was out at sea, especially in rough seas, what the captain would often shout is, stem the tide. In other words, point the stem of the ship, the prow, directly into the oncoming waves. Take them head on, go into the storm surge, face and ride out the storm by going head to head with the angry waves. And so for a boogie boarder, that actually was a good idea as well, to stem the tide, to go straight into the wave, either to try and go up over the top of it or to push your way into the wave and through it so you wouldn't get flipped upside down. Stem the tide. Do you ever feel like being a Christian in the world today in 2017 is like facing a massive wave, a massive wave of evil, of wickedness, of anger, of hatred, of lawlessness. I look at the world and, you know, I, I, I hate to do this because it is so easy to do. I could give newspaper article after newspaper article you know, after media outlet article on the state of the world. I can do it every week. It's, it's easy. When I, when I begin to think about, especially dealing with sin in the world, all i got to do is just turn on a news app and I've got four or five examples right there. It is true that we are living in an increasingly lawless world. We look around and more and more there is just... I have not lived in a generation that has seen more protesting than this one. And yes, there was great protesting in the 60s. I get it, but come on. It doesn't even matter what the issue is, but it is a constant people marching, people protesting. I'm like, don't you have anything better to do with your life? My wife is in Ghana. I'm taking care of my kids by myself. I don't have time to protest. I protest and my wife is in Ghana. And in the church, what we tend to see is we see some shrinking back to their fearful traditions and we see some churches then declining. We see other churches sinking down in tolerance of the world as it is, but there is a better option. Stem the tide. Brothers and sisters in Christ, stem the tide. Turn the prow of the ship into the waves. Sail direct into the darkness, into the evil, into the wickedness, but don't compromise the vessel. Don't compromise the truth. Stem the tide. Ride into the wickedness with the truth of Jesus Christ. That is why we are here. But Rick, what if my vessel gets broken up? What if it does? Can anybody take from you eternal life that has been given to you in Jesus Christ? No. Now, 2,000 years ago, Paul, along with Timothy and Silas, wrote to the Thessalonian church. And he told them back then, hey, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And anyone among those at Thessalonica could have said, of course it's already at work. We see it at work all around us. The mystery of lawlessness. Mystery is that word mysterion in the Greek. And it doesn't mean something unknown. It means something that is to be revealed. All of God's mysteries He has or is revealing. God is a God of unveiling, of revelation. And so the mystery of of lawlessness, it's already at work. What is that mystery? It is the devil's endeavors to regain control of the world of which he lost his grip when Jesus died on the cross. Up until then, it was looking pretty good for him. And even into that night and morning and day of darkness... It was looking pretty good for him, and he felt like he could tighten his grip. But then Jesus rose from the dead and changed everything. And suddenly, the devil didn't have the power he had. In fact, the Bible tells us in Colossians 2.15, 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Jesus disarmed the wickedness and the evil in this world by rising from the dead, by going through that remarkable sacrifice. So that yes, we see lawlessness at work around us. The mystery is that Satan is trying all that he can to regain control of a world that is out of his control. Though we look at it and we see a world that is out of control, don't we? He's working hard. His his demons working hard in this world. Evil trying to push forward. It's that wave that I was talking about. A wave of wickedness that doesn't seem to stop. From Charlotte to Barcelona, just this week, every act of sin, every act of deceit, evil, lawlessness is all about the death and destruction of humanity, taking out as many people as he possibly could. But if you feel like his death grip is tightening once again, understand that's just the mystery of lawlessness. It's been proclaimed. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. So you know what the lay of the land is going to be, or perhaps the lay of the sea. We know the sets of waves are coming one after another. But listen, get this, as bad as things may seem, whether in Thessalonica or America, understand the wave of wickedness is still held at bay. The wave of wickedness is still today under restraint for now. Now, as I said, in the last few weeks, we have waded into an ocean of prophecy. We have looked at the harpazo, the catching up, the the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've talked about the paralambano. That is Jesus saying one will be left, one will be taken. Paralambano. To receive unto, to take to himself. I don't know if I shared this with you all on a Sunday. I know I did on a Wednesday. But Matthew 24 Jesus says, one will be left, one will be taken. That word paralambano, Jesus uses again in John 14, where he says, I will come again to receive you to myself. Same word. So we've talked about this this picture of the rapture, the, the being taken along with or receiving to, or as we talked about last week, and some of you struggle with this, I get it, I understand. The departure. The departure of the church that must come first. And the word that we see translated in our English translations is apostasy. And I told you last week, well that's the Greek word, apostasia. Look at it again, it's in verse 3. I want to re-confirm a few things with you before going on. Paul says, let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now, generations of Christians have assumed the apostasy is the church falling away. It is not, in my opinion, referring to the church falling away. It's referring to the church departing in the rapture. It must come first. Now, I I went in depth last week talking about that, yet there were still some questions. I expected that. If it unnerved you, if it confused you at all, perhaps it's because we're so used to this word apostasy being a bad word. And we don't like to use a bad word for a good thing. We don't want to say apostasy when we're really talking about the rapture. How could you use a word like that for the rapture of the church? And it just goes back to our understanding or misunderstanding. Some uh, actually told me they'd never heard this before. This translation of apostasia being anything other than falling away. Specifically, rebelling against God, falling into heresy. They never heard a different definition. So let me recap a few things for you so you know where I got this. And I wasn't just pulling this out of my head, trying to prove something that needs more proof. And by the way, as if it does, the rapture doesn't need more proof. It's all over the scriptures. The church being called out, brought home, taken up, it's all over the scriptures. But this, I believe, is talking about that. Kenneth Wiest, in his word studies, and I shared this last week, Greek scholar par excellence of the last century, he wrote specifically, quote, first and foremost, it means a geographical departure. Apostasia. He says that, that's the, the best definition in 2 Thessalonians 2, a geographical departure. Lytle and Scott's Greek lexicon, uh, they define it as either a defection or a departure. That the word can be used 
Either way in classical Greek. The theological dictionary of the New Testament tells us apostasia is a transitive verb that means, quote, to remove either spatially or within a relationship, to win over, to remove oneself, to resign, or to fall away. So yes, apostasy, apostasia could be used of someone falling away from faith or falling away from uh, a loyalty. But it was also equally used of simply departing, leaving, Going from this place to another apple from Stasia or Estemai is the Greek there. I know that's confusing, but that word means to stand from where I stand. Going from here to there. I stand here, now I stand there. That's the simple meaning of the word. And I remind you again, the first seven English translations of the Bible translated 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3, departure. The Wycliffe Bible in 1384, the Tyndale Bible in 1526, the Coverdale Bible in 1535, the Cranmer in 1539, the Breaches or Great Bible, 1576, the first time apostasia was retranslated falling away and used that translation was in the Catholic Bishop's Bible, which was the basis for the authorized version, the King James translation in 1611. The King James translation today, if you read it, says a falling away. And the New American Standard Bible that I teach out of, that says specifically as you read, the apostasy. See, that's just easier. When you have a word that's difficult, just transliterate it into an English word. You know, we do that with baptism. Too many arguments over what baptizo means, so let's just create an English word baptism, and that way we don't have to discuss it, and we can just tell people it means being sprinkled when you're a baby. Well, that's not what the word means. It means to submerge. Same with apostasia. They just made it a word, apostasy. And so for generations, we've assumed it's a bad thing. Well, defection would be. Falling away would be, but that's not the only translation for it. Now, if you want to hold fast to that, and if you are absolutely convinced that the apostasy that comes first must be the church falling away, let me give you a few more things here. First of all, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 does use the verb form that way. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. And fall away is aphistomai, which is the verb form there of, of apostasia. So yes, the word is used in the Bible that way. You can translate it that way. But listen carefully to what Paul said. Again, 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away. There will be some falling away. In 2 Thessalonians 2.3, this is the apostasia. The falling away. And if it refers to the church, then it is the big one. This is the church falling into apostasy. Please understand this. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach a wholesale falling away of the church. Nowhere. Yes, some will fall away. But the only time the church in its entirety goes anywhere is when we go up in the rapture. So theologically, it doesn't work to say that the falling away must happen first, that the church in the world must fall to apostasy. No, the church in the world will depart and will be home with Jesus. In the New Testament, apostasia, the noun form, aphistomai, the verb form, means departure far more often than it means falling away from faith. I gave you an example last week, Acts chapter 12, verse 10. A very simple example of the angel who released Peter from prison, saved him from prison, takes him through the streets of Jerusalem, and we're told in Acts 12, 10, the angel departed from Peter. Did he fall away from faith in Peter? Or did he simply depart? The word ephistomai is used right there. What we translate apostasy is used right there. The angel departed from Peter. He left. He went away. That is a legitimate translation of the word ephistomai. 
Acts 19 verse 9 says when some of the Jews were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, Paul withdrew from them a fistomite. Paul withdrew. He left. And he began then teaching in the school of Tyrannus. So once again, and I told you last week, 12 of the 15 times the verb form aphistomai for apostasia is used in the Bible, 12 of 15 times it is simply going from one place to another. It's not about falling away from faith. So here in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, let no one in any way deceive you, it will not come unless the departure, the apostasia, comes first. Remember what determines the meaning of a word that has more than one definition. What determines the meaning of a word with more than one definition? Context. Context. We understand this. We don't even think about it in English, but we'll use a certain word the same way to describe two very different things. We know what it means because of how we're using it. For example, I can leave the church. Falling away in a, defe- in a defection. I've left the church. Or I can leave the church because the meeting's over and it's lunchtime. Same word. One has a negative connotation. One has a very positive connotation. One is a departure of rebellion. The other one is a departure to Red Robin. Okay? Both use the word leave, but depending on how we use the word, that's what defines it. How is the word used here? Something must come first before the man of lawlessness can be revealed. Hmm. Why is that? Now, I already threw the question out last week. Why must the church fall away before the man of lawlessness is revealed? I mean, why must the church go into wholesale apostasy, as we would call it, defection from the truth? If the man of lawlessness, his entire purpose is lawlessness. That's what he's coming to do. That's he, he wants to lead people away. Why must we fall away first before he can come and lead people to fall away? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. You might say, well, it's just like buttering your bread. It's just getting the, everything ready. Well, there's some truth to that. But I want you to understand, and I will show you now this morning, I believe the context of Second Thessalonians is talking about the departure the departure. I'll show you why. <clears throat> why hasn't Antichrist already appeared? I mean, I mean, think about the question in this world today. You read the news and you think, I don't know why it hasn't happened yet. I don't know why God is so patient. I don't know why He's put up with so much for so long. Why hasn't Antichrist appeared? Why hasn't the world completely tipped into an ocean of evil? Why didn't it happen under Hitler? Got close. Why, why in this generation hasn't it just completely flipped upside down? What, what could possibly be holding it back? And of course that's the text for us this morning. Someone or something has stemmed the tide, both holding it back and sailing directly into it. I want to break down this morning's text into three parts. So let me give you the first part right now, and that is the removal of the restraint. The reason this world has not flipped into evil yet, completely turned over, is because of the restraining influence. Look at verse 5 again. Verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Now the commentators point out, and this is important, Paul is talking about defining some stuff here that he already taught in Thessalonica. So they already have a basis for understanding. Part of the reason I've been breaking this down into four different teachings on the rapture of the church is that we would have a basis for understanding before we got here. Before we got to what we're talking about right now. And Paul had done that. So the Thessalonian people were not shocked or surprised or confused. They read what Paul writes as things that he had already taught them. And so he didn't need to go into great breakdowns of things. He already talked about the departure. He had already shared with them what it looked like and what was coming. And so he he now says, remember, when I was with you, I told you this, in the short stay... Whether it was three Sabbaths or three months or however long Paul was actually in Thessalonica, it was short. But in that time, Paul had already covered all of this. 
Which tells me that for new believers, prophecy is important. It matters. Having a view of the end and the imminency of the return of Jesus is part. That's Bible 101. That's not stuff to be left off to those nuts who study Revelation. It's for all of us. And so he says, I was telling you these things. And then he says, verse 6, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. He who now restrains. It's literally ho katecho. Ho being, again, that definite article. Look for that in the Greek. The definite article, the. The katecho. The restrainer is what's being talked about here. And katecho means to hold back, to detain, or to hinder. And so this word restraint is, is very, it's exactly how we use the word. To restrain and hold something back. The restrainer here is a, a sing, used in the singular, but it is used in two different ways. And it's interesting, he says, you know what holds the Antichrist back, the man of lawlessness. And he says, then he who holds the man of lawlessness back. What and who? The restraint that's being talked about here is both a what and a who. Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the church? The church that is filled up person to parson by the Spirit of Christ. Person to parsonage. That is, individuals filled with the Spirit of God and the entire church filled with the Spirit of God. Is the spirit of restraint, is what is restraining the tide of evil in the world today and has been for the last 2,000 years. I read this to you earlier, John 7.38. He who believes in me, Jesus says, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What can hold back a wave but a stronger wave? Rivers of living water that he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But you know, when Jesus was glorified, when Jesus resurrected, God began filling people with his spirit. Beginning with that day of Pentecost and every day since, people who now make up the church. And that needs to be our understanding. The church is not the gathering here on a Sunday morning. The church is all those who are filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God, be they here or elsewhere. Wherever we might be in the world, the church is those who have been born again by the Spirit. Acts chapter 2 verse 16, Peter said, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And you might say, well, if God is going to pour out His Spirit on all mankind, why isn't every single person filled with the Holy Spirit? Because you've got to receive Him. I can give my children gifts at Christmas, but if they refuse to open the gifts, then the gifts really aren't theirs yet, are they? So the Spirit is poured out. The Spirit is available. God has given His entire Spirit. And by the way, if you're born again, you don't need more. You already have all of His Spirit. We often pray that. I want more of His Spirit. You have all of Him. Now you may need to recognize more or, or be open to more of what He's willing to do or wants to do in you. But we have His Spirit. This new power that was formed in those who were born again. And it is that power that has been stemming the tide and restraining evil for the last two millennia. Let me be very clear about this. It is the spirit in the church in the world. That is the restrainer that's that's being talked about. It's both the, the, the what, that is the church, and it is the who, the spirit. The spirit in the church. And that is why we haven't tipped over. That's why as bad as things may sometimes seem, we are not consumed in this world because the Spirit of God is in the church and has always been for 2,000 years. And even when the church has been persecuted and even when the church has had to go into hiding at different times, Spirit's still there. 
Evil can only go so far. Now I know what this sounds like to a non-believer. It is the spirit in the church that's holding back evil in the world. How arrogant of you Christians. How can you say such a thing? How condescending to the rest of us. Listen. Saying that the church restrains evil is like saying I can stand in the surf and hold back a wave. I can't do that. It is not us. It's not the lobbying power of the organized church exerting its influence on Washington. I know there are those that are very much into that. It will never work. It's not all the denominations banding together as one. And I know there are those who say, Man, in Oak Harbor, I just wish all the churches could get along. I I don't know that we don't. You know, I'm not out there fighting out, you know, duking it out with other pastors. In fact, when I walk in and run into other pastors in Oak Harbor or in Anacortes, we always share a hug. And how are you doing? And how's your church going? And I'm praying for you and we pray together. And there is a love and a camaraderie among the pastors. People sometimes come to me and say, why don't you pastors get along? Did you see us arguing? (laughs) I am thankful for every church that names Jesus Christ as Lord. Because that's another group of people filled with the Spirit of the living God holding back the tide of evil. And we are just a, a small part of a much larger body even throughout the islands in Skagit Valley and all Washington State and all America and the rest of the world. But we're part of it. And we're part because of the Spirit of the living God in all of us. We, as human beings, will not hand the finished work of the kingdom over to Jesus on a silver platter saying, look at what we've done. No, it is the Spirit in the church, in the world, that holds back evil. Take away the Spirit. we got nothing. Well, we have the Word of God, yes, and we would have lots of education. But we would not, if we didn't have the Spirit, we would not have the power to carry out the gospel in the world. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. What did Jesus tell them? Peter, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem until my Spirit's on you. Why not, Lord? Because I know what you'll do. (laughs) I know where you guys would take this. You need my Spirit to carry out my will. Listen to this, over in John 14, and I know this is familiar to some of you, but Jesus made these promises. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. Note that, that He may be with you forever. And the the Greek word forever is translated forever. That is the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. You know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Look down at verse 23 if you're you're reading along. If anyone loves me, Jesus says, you will keep my word. My Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things, verse 25, I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Look over in chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus said, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you, From the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. By the way, note this, the Holy Spirit is never named in the Bible. Never named. Except in terms of Jesus or God the Father. He is the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus. He is the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of truth. He is referred to as the Comforter, as a descriptive name, but it's not. We don't call Him Parakletos like we call Jesus, Jesus. Why is the Holy Spirit not named? Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. We already know His name, Yahweh. We already know His name, Yeshua, Jesus. The Spirit is His Spirit. And while, yes, the three are unique in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God. 
So you're referring to the same. So this spirit of truth, he will testify about me, Jesus says, and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. He is in you, you are in the world, and you will stem the tide of evil because you will testify by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit in the church, in the world, that is the divine deterrent that's holding back lawlessness even today. They might say, alright, well, that makes sense. I get that. I don't have any problem with that, that the Spirit is in the church restraining evil. What in the world does that have to do with the rapture of the church? Great question. Thanks for asking. <laughs> for Antichrist to come, listen. For Antichrist to come, the Spirit must go. And if the Spirit must go, the church must go with Him. Well, how can you say that? How do you know that? He will be with you, Jesus said, forever. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. He will be with you. Hebrews 13, verse 5, He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? We will not be left here when the Spirit departs. So, right there, proof of the rapture of the church. He must leave before evil floods in and Antichrist is revealed. The Spirit goes. So when the Spirit goes, I go. Because where the Spirit goes, I go. He's not going to say, Gotta run! So long, suckers! (laughs) Because the Spirit has come to be with you, with me, forever. More proof of this is in the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. We see God mentioned, we see the Lamb mentioned, but we don't hear the Holy Spirit mentioned. Why? Because the Spirit is in and among the church. On into eternity. He will be with you forever. What I'm telling you here is that verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way Gang, that is commentary in context of verse 3. It cannot happen until the apostasia comes first. There must be a departure. One must leave before Antichrist can be revealed. So you can say, well then the one who must leave must be the Spirit. Exactly. And who is leaving with the Spirit? The church. The rapture. That's what Paul is talking about here. That is the substance of the entire teaching. There must first be a departure before there is the wave of evil. Now, the spirit in the church in the world is the restraining influence right now. But as he goes, so we go. John 3.8, Jesus said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end to an end by the appearance of his coming. So after the removal of restraint... Antichrist is revealed. For this reason, I do not believe we will see Antichrist. I've been asked, is he in the world today? I don't know. If he is, he'll trump all other world leaders. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Is he in the world? People are asking that question. We're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. We are not to be here for the revelation of the Antichrist. We are going to go see Jesus. And so before He is revealed, we're out of here. But then He is revealed, right? Then He will be seen. But Paul says, listen, before he even discusses any of what Antichrist does, before he goes further, he says, don't worry, He's going to be slayed. He's going to be taken out. That's that's what is prophesied. That's what will come. The Lord will slay Him with the breath of His mouth. Doesn't mean He needs a mint. 
Isaiah 11 verse 4, it's a prophetic passage. Isaiah said, with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked in Hebrew and in Greek. You Bible students know this. Breath, ruach in the Hebrew, pneuma in the Greek is also spirit. The spirit of His mouth. When Jesus returns in all the power of His spirit and us with Him, it will not be to restrain, it will be to rule with a rod of iron. And He will take out Antichrist immediately at His return. Okay, what about this Antichrist character? Look at verse 9. He's the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. With all power and signs and false wonders. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. This brings me to part two in our outline this morning. Seeing is deceiving. Seeing is deceiving. He comes in all of the, the, the potency or the activity of Satan. This, this Antichrist. We talked about last week. Antichrist is a man. The 666 in Revelation 13 says this is a number of a man. The point is, someone who never reaches completion, someone who has never finished, 66666, never quite gets to seven. And so Antichrist, this man, it will be a human being. It will be a world leader. He will rise up and people will begin to follow after and think, he's our man, he can do it. He's the one in whom we can put our trust. And I'm here to tell you, there's only one in whom we can ever put our trust. There is only one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. But this Antichrist will come along with all the activity, the power in accord with Satan. And that tells us immediately Satan is a master deceiver. And so that's what Antichrist will do. And we have never seen deception the likes of which will be seen during that short reign of this Antichrist figure. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, false Christs and false prophets will arrive and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. People say, oh, see, the elect, that's the church. No, it's not. The word is simply the chosen and Jesus was talking about Israel. Because the context of what Jesus says, that is Antichrist deception, the church is not here. We are not present. We're gone before Antichrist is revealed. The elect is referring to the people of Israel, unbelieving at that point, but coming to faith on earth at the time. And by the way, Israel has always looked for signs. That's part of what's happening. He's going to come with, note this, power and signs and false wonders. Well, that speaks right to the heart of the Jew who says, show us a sign. Jews look for signs. The Bible tells us. I just heard this last night. Mazel tov. You know when the Jewish people say mazel tov, we think it's like saying cheers. Or some people say it's like saying good luck. Mazel tov, tov, T-O-V, tov, it means good. In the mornings in Israel you say boker tov, good morning. Tov is good. Mazel, you know where that comes from? It comes from the word mazarot. You know what the Maserot is? It's the constellations. It's good constellations. That's what Mazel Tov means. Because the Jews are looking for signs in the heavens. This is a total side note. I'm completely off my notes now. That's just fine. Tomorrow there's going to be a sign in the heavens. This total eclipse of the sun that everybody's so excited about going to see. By the way, don't look at it. What was the last thing you saw? The eclipse. <laughs> Bible prophet, prophecy scholars are, are fascinated, you know, looking at these things. We're, we're kind of like, ah, what's up with this? Well, it is interesting that the Bible does say that the sun will be turned to darkness before the great and powerful day of the Lord. That's the first time in over a hundred years that America will have seen a total eclipse like we will see tomorrow. And what's interesting is if you look at it, wait, wait, Rick, are you telling us that this is the start of it all? No, we're not going to be here, right, for the day of the Lord. 
I'm not saying it's not part of a heads up. I mean, how is God going to get our attention? But I think it is interesting when you look, when you chart the path of the of the total eclipse across America, it cuts our country in half. Straight down the middle. And what's interesting about that is the rabbis believe that total solar eclipses are signs of judgment. Might this be signaling God is just about done with the foolishness of Americans who have turned their back on Him? I think possibly. And we're going to talk more about some of these things in a couple of weeks, but it's interesting what's taking place. The Jews look for signs. Signs, which is the M.O. of Antichrist. Dynamite is power. Signs is semiosis. And then false wonders is pseudo-terrison, pseudo-miracles. And what's interesting to me about these three words, power, signs, and false wonders, related to Antichrist, is these exact three words are used to describe Jesus in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So Peter ascribed these three words to Jesus. Yes, he did function in signs and in wonders and in miracles. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4 ascribes the same, same thing to the prophets. God testified with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So God has used these things to get people's attention and to open eyes. But here's the point, and don't miss this. The miraculous moves of Antichrist will look true. People will see these things. And they will not look like parlor tricks. They will be powers that displayed and people will at first, the Bible tells us, be impressed with these things. Intrigued by these things. Why? Because seeing is deceiving. Revelation 13 describes the false prophet of the Antichrist. Yes, he gets his own prophet. Revelation 13, 14. He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast. But this is what you've got to understand, what I need to remember, and that is that powers and signs and wonders do not develop faith. They might get your attention. They might bring about an ooh-ah moment. But they will never develop faith. Ask the people of Israel. Ask the children of Israel in the wilderness. No generation ever in the history of the world saw more signs than the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. Unbelievable signs. Miraculous signs. Powerful signs. When was the last time you walked through parted sea? Except at Universal Studios. (laughs) When was the last time you woke up in the morning and there was bread to eat, prepared for you every day, fresh, ready to go? When was the last time you struck a a rock and, and water came? See, these signs, these miraculous things, when was the last time you were pinned up against a sea and the armies of Egypt were attacking you and you had nowhere to go, but God in a cloud of fire held them at bay, stemmed the tide if you will, until... They walked through the sea. I mean, the miracles that Israel watched and saw were absolutely unmistakable, and yet when they got to the edge of the promised land, they had no faith. Because power and signs and wonders do not develop faith. And what was it that the Jewish Pharisees asked for? Show us a sign! The Sadducees asked as well. And do you realize when they said, show us a sign, it was after... After the fact that Jesus had already opened the eyes of the blind, unstopped the ears of the deaf, and had raised the dead. And that's when they said, show us a sign. We'll pick one. And yet Jesus' response, I love it. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. Matthew 16, verse 4. Jesus said, here's your son. (laughs) The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You want a sign? You look to that. 
that is the one sign that changes a life. That is the one sign that matters. But even for that sign, listen to what Jesus said, Abraham said, Luke 16, verse 31. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Because even resurrection from the dead as a sign will not produce faith. What produces faith? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And let me be very clear what that means. The word of Christ is rematos Christus, not Christos. Rematos Christus, which literally it's in the objective genitive form. Jot that down. Literally what Paul wrote was, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word concerning Christ. The word about Jesus. What is that? The gospel. Faith comes from hearing the gospel of Jesus. Faith comes of the word of God, the gospel. If you'll skip down in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and look at verse 13, Paul, after saying all this, says, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit, and here's your part, faith in the truth. Faith, man. Trust in the truth that is God's truth. Let me ask you this question. Do you love the truth? If the truth is only marginally important in our lives, or worse, if it doesn't matter at all, deception is all we've got left. And note very clearly that Paul writes, with all the deception, verse 10, of wickedness for those who perish. Why do they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. What is the number one thing? I'll give you, in in my opinion, the number one thing the devil has been trying to do to take down the church and our culture, and that is undermine the truth. Cut back on Bible study. You know, Pastor, you teach over an hour on Sunday, and and that's not good. That's not good. You really need to hold about 20 minutes, get people in and out, you know, give them their little snack cracker, and off they go. (laughs) My friends, Amos 8, verse 11 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And I live in a culture that is starving because it is not feeding on God's Word. And it concerns me greatly. Biblical illiteracy seems to be at an all-time high. And I read that consistently. When you look at the statistics, when you look at where the church is at now versus where it used to be, the biblical illiteracy of Christians today is absolutely stunning. And so a famine is coming, I would submit, the famine's here. People are starving, they don't even know why. We're hungry for the truth. We desire, we ache to know and hear the truth of God's Word. But note this, wait, who sends the famine? God says, days are coming when I will send a famine. A famine for the Word. Now get this, because it's one of the most difficult things in Scripture. It is not just Antichrist lies or the false prophet's pseudo-miracles or Satan's deception that will mislead the world. Part three, it is the distribution of delusion. The distribution of delusion, verse 11. Watch this. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. A deluding influence. Deluding is plain A in the Greek. It's that which leads into error, deceit, or fraud. And influence is energeia. Where we get our word energy, it's operation, it is, it is sway. And so in the New Testament, this concept, this idea of energeia is only used to refer supernaturally either to God or to Satan. Energeia is not used with people. This is a divine delusion. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, okay, so you're saying God does this? 
God deludes people? I'm not saying that. We just read that in verse 11. Paul said this. God will send upon them. I had someone just last Sunday say to me, so I know the deluding influence will come. Do we bring that on ourselves? Because God doesn't do that, right? And I opened up to verse 11 and said, well, the Bible says He does. Well, that, but that's not... God is a God of truth, right? He, he doesn't lie. God can't do this. God can do whatever He wants. And the Bible, His word of truth, tells us that the God of truth is the one who sends the deluding influence. Well, it's not possible. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. I told you, the deluding influence is one of the most difficult concepts in all of Scripture, though it doesn't need to be. For Christians, we like to say God allows delusion. God allows Satan to do what he does. So that softens it. God's not responsible then for it. God doesn't send the delusion. Well, the Bible says, in fact, He does. So how do we work this one out? Understand that the premise of this deluding influence sent by God is rooted in the foreknowledge of God. Let me say that again, because this is critical. It is rooted in the foreknowledge of God. That same foreknowledge that we have studied and looked at many times recently. Romans 8.29 For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. If you're a believer today, you are because God has chosen you because you chose Him. We went over this on Wednesday night. God knew you would choose Him and in that knowledge chose you to be conformed to the image of His Son. Does that make sense to everybody? He knew what you were going to do. And so knowing that you were going to choose Him as your Savior, God said, alright, locked in. You haven't made the choice yet, perhaps. You know, 2,000 years ago, I hadn't made the choice yet. I wasn't even born. God knew I would. And so even when I was born into this world, I was already predestined to be a child of God because God knew that when I was 10 years old, I'd stand up and say, I believe in Jesus. I want Him as my Lord and Savior. God knew I was going to do that. And so my life has been characterized by God conforming me to the image of His Son. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying my life has been characteristic of pure righteousness. No. But there have been moments in my life, throughout my life, and I look back and I am stunned how they have all led me to right here. How often I was led directly to Jesus. And continue to have been protected from my own stupidity and foolishness and even sinfulness. That I might walk with Jesus. I have been convinced, I have seen in my life, God's hand on me throughout. Why? He knew what I was going to do. He knew I was going to make that choice. It's His foreknowledge then that allows me to be predestined to salvation. Now understanding that, by that same foreknowledge, God knows, He foreknows who will reject, refuse, and rebel against Him. Before they do it. Why would God then send a deluding influence? The same reason why He predestined some to be conformed to the image of Christ. To reinforce a choice that is made. Are you with me? He is reinforcing a choice. Why would God delude someone? Because they have chosen delusion. Because they have rebelled against Him. Because they say, I want nothing to do with this Jesus. And so God says, a time is coming. hasn't come yet. We're not there yet. Right now, the Lord is doing everything He can to get everybody's attention. But the time is coming when God will send that deluding influence and it will come heavy on those who have absolutely rebelled and want nothing to do with Him. And they will be deluded so that they can't even choose the truth. Because they chose to reject it. Do we have any examples of this in Scripture? Oh, yes. A guy by the name of Pharaoh. (laughs) 
I think this is Pharaoh, five by five. If you read Exodus chapter 7 through Exodus chapter 14, you know the story about God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Has that ever bothered somebody? Anyone? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, that's hardly fair. Poor Pharaoh. How how is that fair that God forced him to do what he wanted? I thought God was a God that, that allowed us some free choice here. Hey, Exodus 7 through 14. The first five times the heart of Pharaoh is hardened, he hardens it. The second five times his heart is hardened, God hardens it. The scripture is clear. The path has been set. The die is cast. Pharaoh says, I will harden my heart against you. And finally God says, I'm going to reinforce that choice. If that's where you stand, then I am with you in that. By the way, it's wholly consistent with the love of God because love requires choice. It must require choice. Then it's not love otherwise. And then love, once requiring choice, honors the choice that is made even if that choice is self-delusion. The person who says, I choose the lies. I choose the deception. I reject Jesus Christ. God says, alright, time's coming when I will confirm that choice in you. Revelation 22.11 Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy, still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. What in the world does that mean? Make the choice. Make the choice. God has no use for fence sitters. The lukewarm. Lukewarm Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Man, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but since you're neither one, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. Make the choice. Either steer into the wave or ride it into the rocks. Either way, make the choice. After all, God did. God made the choice at Calvary, didn't He? He made the choice of the cross. Did God choose me? He did when He stretched out His arms. Did God choose me? Yes, when He accepted the nails. Did God choose me? Oh, when He said to Talus die, it is finished. He chose to die for you. Now you choose Him. Make the choice. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's choice. And he invites us all to it. Last thought. One of the surest signs of the Spirit of God in a person's life in this age is restraint. This restraining influence that is restraining evil in the world, the same influence is in you if you have been born again. If the Holy Spirit is in you. Restraint. It is even listed among the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Restraint. Self-control. What are you saying, Rick? The practicality of this is huge for us, brothers and sisters. Remove restraint, and there is nothing left to hold back delusion and deceit. So, self-control is a gift, a fruit of those who walk in the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Ephesians 4.14, We're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Restraint is characteristic of a believer of Jesus. Soberness. The ability to say no to what is evil. No to what is dark. No to what the culture says is just fine. Show some restraint, brothers and sisters. Because if the Holy Spirit is in you, you have the power to restrain yourself from sin. As an individual. And as the church. Restraint is a Holy Spirit thing. And so how do we in this age, how do we face the rising waves of wickedness? I already told you, stem the tide. 
Man, by the power of the Spirit, turn these vessels directly into the storm surge of lawlessness. Let's live with righteous restraint, with the self-control of the Holy Spirit, because, mark this, the day is soon upon us. And He is coming back to call us out. The Spirit will go. These vessels will go with Him. And the question that we are left with this morning is, are you good to go? Are you ready? Lord Jesus, I pray that You will convict our hearts this morning. Every one of us. Father, You are so good and so gracious to remind us that our readiness comes of one thing, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. And we have received the truth. Lord, we have the love of the truth. Jesus, You are the way, the truth, and the life. And we know that we will come to the Father through You. I pray, Father, You will confirm faith in the heart of every believer here this morning. I pray for anyone who is waffling, who is on the fence, who is uncertain, or who has not made a choice for Jesus, that that choice be made today. I pray that the realities that we study and teach and learn and seek to understand here in Your Word, Father, that they will be made absolutely clear to us so that we will be persistent with restraint against evil and the proclamation of the Gospel until we all go home. In Jesus' name, Amen.